0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello everyone, welcome to this New Books Network podcast on public policy. My name is Leo Naskar, and today I'm joined by Dr. John Lapidus. John is currently a research fellow at the School of Business, Economics and Law within the University of Jottenberg in Sweden, where he earned his PhD in 2015. Prior to John's academic career, he spent several years as a journalist and also spent time working in Nicaragua, with the Swedish Nicaragua Friendship Association, an international NGO that helps communities build self-help organisations and tackle poverty. But today we're discussing his book, The Quest for a Divided Welfare State. Published in 2019, it documents the challenge to the universal welfare system in Sweden and its replacement by a multi-tier exclusionary paradigm. It excellently identifies the methods through which neoliberal advocates promote private provision of welfare and private funding, and explains how these features interact in a self-reinforcing way to nullify opponents and win over ambivalent actors in the political sphere. And though focused on the the Swedish welfare state and political economy, we'll also draw up general lessons that apply to developed democracies the world over, tracing the divided welfare state back to the proliferation of neoliberal ideas, which have challenged the model of welfare provision essentially every European country, and indeed much more broadly. John, it's a pleasure to be talking to you today. I wanted to start by asking you about the title. Um, What made you call the book The Quest for the Divided Welfare State? It's it's very interesting to me because it's interesting that you emphasise the agency of those actors pursuing that division. So please tell us, if you will, um, a little bit more about the title and how everything has led to you writing the book.
0: Thank you so much, Leo, and thank you very much for the invitation, of course. I'm happy to be here. Um, Well, it is quite obvious for for most people that we are moving away from what we call the the Swedish welfare model. We we actually called it a lot of different things. We call it the Swedish welfare model, the the Scandinavian welfare model, the Nordic welfare model, since it was quite similar in in many countries, not not only Sweden, but also Denmark and and Norway and so on. We called it the universal welfare model to to say that it was inclusive and and for everyone. Uh, In the most famous categorization of all by the sociologist uh, Sping Anderson, he, he called it the social democratic welfare model and he contrasted it to the to the conservative and to the liberal welfare model but we can also talk we can talk about the liberal welfare model but we can also talk about the divided welfare model or the divided welfare state which i think is quite an accurate uh, term for for describing what is happening because a divided welfare state is actually when we get two different welfare states in one and the same country. We get uh, one hidden welfare state. Uh, It has been termed uh, by Howard, for instance, in 1999, the hidden welfare state. Uh, That is the part of the welfare state that is for the more affluent groups of, of society. Uh, and then we get a visible, uh, more public welfare state for those who remain in, in the public system. And uh, the most extreme example that we see in the world today maybe is, is the United States, of course, where you have this typical division between a, a hidden and, and a visible welfare state. Because in, in the United States, for for instance, for healthcare, which I'm main that's my main interest, uh, And I try to draw on the example on the rapid rise of of private health insurance in Sweden to show that we are moving towards this kind of divided welfare state. But in the United States, if you can prove yourself poor enough, you can get treatment by, by Medicaid, it's called. Uh, and if you prove yourself old enough, you you are entitled to to Medicare for for old people. So that's the visible part of the of the welfare state. But in such a divided welfare state, that is also what you mean by welfare. So you actually say to people that. He is on welfare. If if he or she is, uh, is, is on Medicaid, he's on welfare. So you get a total different connotation of the world welfare. It's not meant for everyone, it's only for some stigmatized groups which are needs uh, based on needs, based on poverty, or based on age. They get, they are entitled to a second class type of, of, of visible welfare. And that is also the. In the public debate, you you, you only debate that kind of visible welfare because that's the only type of welfare that you can actually see. You can see it in all the budgets and so on. It's very visible. But on the other hand, you have the hidden welfare state, which also cost the state a lot of money. And that's the that's the secret behind the hidden welfare state, that it's also very costly for the state, not because of direct spending where you take in taxes and then you spend like on Medicaid and Medicare, but it's more about an indirect spending where, where the state loses uh, tax revenue due to a lot uh, of uh, tax breaks. For example, the the huge tax breaks in in the United States, both for individuals and for employers, when it comes to to private health insurance. So, due to that, the state loses uh, enormous amounts of money each year. And if you if you put this hidden welfare state on top of the visible welfare state in the United States, then you see that the we, all, we all often think that the, the welfare state in the United States is is quite small, but that's, that's because we only look at the visible part of it. If we, if we add the, the hidden part, then, then we see that it almost uh, comes up to, to European levels.
1: Mm, and I think there are two real sort of key aspects here. There's the, as well as this, the way in which welfare is funded, whether it's private or public, there's also the provision and whether that is provided by by the state uh, through sort of county councils and state-run hospitals or or privately. And I think that's really where the story starts in that in the, the liberal divided system in the U.S., um, it's very private. And by contrast, in so they, the uh, 60s, 70s in Sweden, it was not so at all. But our story really starts with as Sweden becomes more um, privatized in terms of provision. I wondered if you could talk a little bit more about how that comes about, but more on what's the effect of that on the welfare landscape and the welfare mix and that political economy.
0: Yeah exactly I think uh, the privatization of of provision in Sweden which started already in the early 1990s or so even the late 80s that is actually the key to the to the privatization of funding which is uh, one example is of course the private health insurance which has uh, Rising quite rapidly in Sweden, we now have about seven hundred thousand individuals who sign up for private health insurance. That's about uh, that's more than ten percent of the grown-up uh, population. So I find this uh, uh, mutual independence uh, or mutual dependence between uh, between provision and funding of welfare. So what do I mean by that? I mean that if if the insurance companies in Sweden, the the private funding side of the of the thing, if they are if they will be able to send their seven hundred thousand customers somewhere, they need to look for privately provided healthcare uh, units, hospitals, uh, primary care clinics, and so on. So, because still in Sweden we have a lot of uh, healthcare that is publicly provided and you cannot go to a publicly provided healthcare center with your private health insurance claiming that you shall have fast access because that's the that's the idea behind the Swedish private health insurance that you get very fast access to, to clinics. You cannot go to publicly provided healthcare units to do that. So in order to, to be able to use your private health insurance, you are dependent on privately provided uh, healthcare all over the countries uh, all over the country and and also on all care levels so if it hadn't been that we first privatized the provision of healthcare then we wouldn't have seen this this rapid rise of uh, privatization of, of the funding so that's how they are interlinked and so so private funding is totally dependent on on a on a on a net of private providers, but the private providers also becomes more and more dependent on private funding. That's because most of the privately provided health units in Sweden, they are for profit and they need to spread their risks. And it can be quite risky to have an agreement only with the county council. So they they seek, uh, Profits not only from the public side, but also from, from the private side. That's, that's one aspect of it. Another aspect is that they are actually getting more money from the, the insurance companies than they do from, from the county councils. So they earn more money on their private health insurance customers than they do on the on the rest of the people who comes as as ordinary uh, patients and that's that's a quite critical factor because that can mean that in the long run uh, the private uh, providers might be more interested in in um, in the insurance companies and less interested in the public sector in the county councils uh, we see that for instance in the united states that as i said before you are entitled to some kind of second-class uh, healthcare if you are old enough or or poor enough, but in many states in the in the United States, you have nowhere to go because the private providers won't take you. They won't see you because they know they don't get as much money from Medicaid or Medicare as they do from the insurance companies. So that's a risk in the long run. We don't see that at all in Sweden yet because. It's still the case that the private providers, almost all of them, are more dependent on the public sector than on the insurance companies. But this might also be be some kind of qualitative change uh,
1: in in the long run. I think to add to that point, is really interesting how um, in the US, private um, insurers are paying um, providers up to 50% more compared to what the state is able to pay. So we see that once... Uh, private funding is let into the welfare mix, it can really spiral um, working alongside private provision to create a really dominant um, aspect of the welfare mix. And at the same time, I think whilst private provision sort of unlocks the door to this this dominant feature, this divided welfare state, it needs something to push it before... um, private funding can, can be un- unlocked. What's sort of the smoking gun? I think one of the ideas is that the smoking gun that creates this big mix is is the state. And first, the state has a big role in getting private provision kick-started and making it such a dominant player in the provision of welfare. But second, it also has that big role that you referenced with tax breaks, etc., cetera, um, to support private funding. Because again, without the state, you would have neither... The private provision, nor the private funding, and I wondered if you could talk about the state's role in both of those areas.
0: Yeah, it's it's, it's very true that the, for instance, the the rise of private health insurance in Sweden was was very much due to to. Uh, legal stuff which is of, often under the radar for the public debate for instance, the, the tax breaks uh, thing, uh, because that's also a part of why we call it the hidden welfare state it's uh, it's outside the public debate, it's about very complicated tax uh, measures and, and tax decisions and it's also a lot of business secrecy uh, in it, because uh, as a researcher as a journalist as a, as a public you cannot easily get access to all the statistics uh, because it's it's uh, it's private actors who who have uh, access to it and, and they are not very happy to, to leave it out to to anyone so uh, for instance in Sweden it was possible to to make a very generous tax break on on private health insurance you could actually if we if we take a very simple example if you earn 30,000 crowns a month in Sweden we talk about crowns Swedish crowns then you pay 50% tax you get 15,000 uh, in your uh, wallet and then you buy a private health insurance for 5,000 Then of course you get ten thousand, and that's without the the state subsidy of the of the whole thing. Uh, But the way it happened in Sweden was that you still earn thirty thousand a month. Your employer buys the 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 private health insurance for you for five thousand, and then of course before tax you have twenty five thousand, and then you pay fifty uh, percent tax, and then you get in the wallet twelve thousand five hundred, and that's the that's the magic behind it. That's the trick that that the state have suddenly you have earned as an individual. You have earned two thousand five hundred crowns, but who who lost that money? Of course, it's it's the state who, who loses that money, and. Uh, this is this is how it works with with the tax break and there was a political debate in Sweden a few years ago where the social democrats and the left party tried to abolish this generous tax breaks because if you get something from your employer the normal thing in Sweden is that you you pay tax for it but this was an exemption so they tried to to abolish this uh, uh, this generous tax break, and they managed to create a law uh, saying that from now on you cannot do this kind of tax break. But then, interestingly enough, uh, the, the, what we now choose to call it, but the welfare industrial complex or the big, uh, or even more, every year more powerful welfare industry in Sweden, they were, of course, not very happy with this law, so they went to the uh, tax agency in Sweden and complained, and they demanded that the, the law should be interpreted in another way. So they managed to to make the tax agency create a new announcement, a new interpretation of this law, where only 50% is, is included in the law, and uh, 50% is... Uh, is still possible to make this kind of tax break. So that's an example of how, when we... I mean, the Swedish welfare model was... The main characteristic of the Swedish welfare model was that we had a public monopoly almost on both provision and funding of welfare, like health care, elderly care, education and so on. But when you start to privatize, first the provision and then also the funding, then you, of course you get a lot of very strong actors in society who are joining all kind of state inquiries and so on. And this is an example where they even have the power to influence uh, authorities in Sweden, like the tax agency, which you think is is, is very hard to, to influence in that way, especially when there is a law which is very clear on the subject. But... Uh, this shows that uh, this kind of actors have today, uh, they have a lot of power. And, and when we are making the welfare into a market, I mean, Sweden was characterized by a mixed economy where we actually had uh, taken away some parts of of society from the logics of the market. We had put it aside. We put elderly care, health care and education aside from the market, from the logic of the market. But now when we once again make it into a market economy then of course we also get all these actors which which also try to uh, privatize more both on the funding side and and on the provision side.
1: Mm, And I think Let's introduce these actors now, at least some of the big companies that you referenced in the book, Capio in healthcare, Atendo in sort of social care, and Academedia in education. These are some of the big players that you reference. And I think before we get into now that they're big players, what are they doing? I'd like to talk about sort of when they were small players, what's their, what are their origins? Because the state has a big role in this as well.
0: Yeah, that's true. And that's quite ironic, actually, because uh, some of these big companies were actually created from the uh, so-called wage earner funds, which was a socialist uh, feature or experiment where you were supposed to take some of the profits from big companies and, and hand it out to the unions. Uh, Something was, which was of course very disputed and, and which was a signal of the big break actually for the Swedish welfare model where the, the employers r- revolted against the Swedish welfare model because they, they of course didn't like this kind of of socialist uh, thinking where you were going to take some of the profits and even more and more profits every year. So, ironically, some of these big companies were actually created from from these wage earner funds uh, in the beginning. And uh, it was also said in the beginning that... uh, Many of these actors were to remain very small. The, they were supposed to be cooperatives and non-profit organizations, foundations, and so on. But soon enough, they they grow to to very big uh, actors. And you mentioned, for example, Capio in uh, in the healthcare sector. Uh, they became a very big actor with many hospitals with maybe 100 or 120 primary care clinics all over the country. And it was recently actually sold from to to an Australian uh, company called Ramsey, which is in turn, it's a french company which in turn is controlled by australian uh, capital so we have actually sold a lot of swedish healthcare to to australia in in these days so that's also an example where we lose not only the the public control but also the some kind of national control of of healthcare and it's it's turned into a global uh, uh, capital sector
1: and then we have these big organizations that perhaps don't have an understanding of of the Nordic or Swedish model and uh going about things their own way when they're this influential what are the ways in which they then influence the the public debate about about uh, the divided welfare state sorry what are the ways in which they then go about influencing the debate now they're yeah. influential they have um this huge sort of heft in in the in the welfare sector they have a large number of Employers who are now reliant on them. And of course, now that you have private provision, you have people getting their welfare not from the state, but from their own employer whatever sector they are as well. And I think these things are all really, really significant for the future developments that we see.
0: Yeah, exactly. And there are also, it must be said also that there are, in this kind of development, there are all the time more and more actors who are drawn into it, be it on their own will or, or, or not, but but uh, there are new facts on the ground. And for example, one very important actor is uh, is the unions, uh, both the the white collar and the blue collar. We have the academic uh, unions in Sweden uh, within TSU and L, and and SAKO, and we have the blue collar within within Lu and uh, the 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 white collar unions are actually uh, offering their members now uh, private health insurance the the blue collar unions are still very skeptical to this and i think that is one of the game changers when when the unions start to to offer this kind of new welfare uh, instruments to to their to their members and if we once again look at the united states we see that there was actually a window for for a more European or or Swedish even healthcare system. Already in the 1930s and 1940s, we had presidents like Truman and Roosevelt who were quite uh, radical in this aspect. They wanted some kind of Medicare for all. But already then, the unions had... uh, signed up uh, uh, agreements with the employers with the insurance companies so they were not interested they are already refrained from wage uh, increases uh, because of these kind of agreements and this is this is some kind of uh, they are still locked into this system in the United States. And we saw in the run up for the Democratic election where Bernie Sanders tried to talk to the union saying, I want uh, Medicare for all. I want a Scandinavian healthcare system. And he was actually booed out by, by some of the unions while Biden traveled around warning for Bernie Sanders' crazy ideas about healthcare on equal uh, terms and so on. So uh, we see that that's that's an aspect which is very important when, when the unions who have hundreds of thousands of members, of course, when they start to, to provide their members with this kind of uh, divided welfare state uh, uh, welfare tools and 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 privileges then then things start to happen very fast
1: and I think it's really interesting how often in this this story of of the development we've seen how institutions that are sort of meant to be in in quote marks defending labor interests with wage earner funds and unions how they're how they sort of become, much more prosperous, and they end up sort of switching sides again. In quote marks, which you can't put in an audio recording, but I'm, I'm doing it. Um, and you have sort of a wage earner fund that's used to develop a company that goes on to become a major private provider. You have unions who, as their as their members and as their society becomes wealthy, start to opt for uh, start to opt for private 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 insurance. Again, they again align themselves more in that neoliberal Direction. Do you think it's inevitable that as people become wealthier, they perhaps become more individualistic and less community-minded, or is this just the way that the uh, the debate has gone in recent decades, but not how it need go in the future?
0: I think the main explanation for all of this is is the the rifts we see between people. I mean up until the 1980s Sweden was actually becoming more equal and was one of the most equal countries in in the capitalist world at least. So so but since the mid 1980s we have seen a uh, uh, lot of division in terms of income and and uh, we have seen a lot of uh, Measures, political measures, where we have abolished uh, many taxes for the rich, for for example, uh, the the yeah the, a number of taxes, and we have seen the tax ratio sinking a lot during the last year. So I think actually that it is very difficult to even have a Swedish welfare model when when the Gini coefficient is is changing so much as it has done in Sweden. I think it's very difficult to to have a society where you are supposed to, where every class in society is supposed to to be content with the the welfare services provided by the public when there are so big differences between the classes. I, th- I think you have to you have to push the wage structure together uh, much more in order to. To be able to create a swedish welfare model actually so uh, i i find it very difficult to to do that when we at the same time are abolishing all taxes for the rich and and so on Mm -hmm. so it it all it all sticks together somehow
1: and so in that sense there is at least an element of path dependency here where whereby you get as we talked about with the spiral before as you get onto it a little bit, it becomes more of a powerful phenomena. And I think there are other sort of aspects of this that are worth exploring. For example, when we talk about a divided welfare state, we're also talking about the psychological factor that's and the way people think about welfare. We're thinking about whether people trust state systems. And we're also thinking about how willing people are to pay for for private systems when they already have you no know, how willing people are to pay their tax for public systems when they already have private welfare, how, how do you see these sort of dimensions developing in, in Sweden? What's been the, the trend?
0: Yeah, I think there are a lot of eroding effects in this uh, new parallel system, which is uh, coming forward more and more. For example, in the healthcare sector with uh, the rapid rise of private health insurance. Of course, many people feel that now I have arranged my own welfare. I have paid for it by my own, even though it's heavily state-subsidized in, in many ways. People people don't think about that. They think that I have paid for my own healthcare now, so why should I then? and also pay for public health care, which I no longer use. So that's, of course, a risk of, uh, of a reduced uh, tax willingness in the future, or even right now. And we see that the tax ratio is actually sinking every year. So, so uh, it's, of course, very difficult to put all this into some kind of regression analysis and get a paper on what's effect- affecting what and so on. But but. Uh, it's it's obvious that it's it's a threat against the, the willingness to pay taxes when you create a parallel system it also has a lot of opinion uh, making uh, very very important aspects of it as uh, now when we have 10% of the population in this parallel healthcare system it's it's uh, it's, it's mainly the most vocal groups in society and uh, they do not. They do no longer see the problems in the public healthcare uh, sector. We have a lot of problems, but they don't see them, and they don't have any self interest anymore in finding solutions. So they don't. They do not do not put pressure on politicians to solve the problems in the public sector. And and when the most vocal groups uh, no longer put pressure on politicians, then politicians can continue to cut down uh, more easily than, than if those groups would have been there putting pressure on them. So it's also a matter of what we would call blame avoidance, that the politicians don't get any blame from these vocal groups because the politicians let them out to, to, to another system where they can, where they can enjoy
1: themselves. And I think it's worth bringing in ideas about what incentives the politician faces in this sense, because if you're a politician and your health system isn't working, for example, it's much easier to say that the system is broken rather than I'm broken. It's much easier to say that this is just an impossible thing to run and we should privatise it, compared to saying I can do it, but you don't want to sort of raise the the possibility that another politician can do better. You'd much rather say this whole thing is, is impossible. And I think that segues us really nicely into the debate and the rhetoric around around this around this debate and the dichotomy there between rhetoric and reality. Because I think once you start once you start having these incentives as a politician, the debate becomes very fractured and it becomes very detached from reality. And that's something that you document quite a lot in the book. I wondered if you could talk through some of the examples there and how the the welfare debate has become, has become twisted in a sense. Mm. Yeah, there are
0: a lot of things to say about that. One of the things is that uh, we have a very influential social democratic party in Sweden, not maybe as influential as, as it used to be, but, but still. And uh, within that party, you see a lot of uh, discrepancy between rhetoric and, and practice in these kind of issues because some parts of the the sayings from from the party are directed to to the grassroots to critics to to people who want to go back to the Swedish welfare model and some other parts of it are actually directed to the to the welfare industry and you never know exactly what what is going on one one very concrete example was the uh, we actually had a stop law in Sweden for a while where where uh, This
1: was in 2006,
0: right? Exactly, exactly. Private providers had to choose between uh, insurance companies and the county councils. They could not have agreements with both sides, so to say. So so they had to choose uh, one one side, and that would have uh, put a quite big hindrance on on the rapid rise of, of private health insurance but then if you read the the bill it starts by saying that that now we are creating this stop law but then in the in the bill itself which is about 30 pages you see a lot of low polls and a lot of exemptions and so on and finally it's even said that private providers should not be very worried about this law because it it, it doesn't have any effect in reality so, so it's a very crazy document actually And then with that document, the Social Democrats could say to to their own grassroots and to critics and so on, now we are creating this law, which will stop the VIP lanes, the the fast access to to health clinics and so on. Uh, But on the other hand, they could say to the private providers that this law doesn't mean much. So you can just... uh, keep on growing and keep on growing this this industry so we have these mixed messages uh, uh, from many parts of societies also from the unions who who continue to say that we are we are very keen on uh, on having a swedish welfare model a universal welfare state but on the other hand they are in in practice they are offering their members these kind of uh, welfare solutions within the hidden welfare state, so uh, there is a lot to say about these differences between rhetoric and practice from, from many actors. Mm-hmm.
1: Because on the same side in 2007, I believe, you have the the START law introduced by the new centre-right government, which sort of goes through exactly the same things. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, exactly. the The center right wing uh, political parties they they were not very happy with this stop law. So as soon as they got into power in two thousand seven, they they abolished the stop law and then they they continued with with what they called the, the start law, which was actually the same thing that applied before the the stop law. So then then the insurance companies and so on were were. Again, free to to sign agreements with private providers who already had agreements with the with the county councils, uh, and that we have seen ever since. And and because of that, this uh, parallel system has been growing and growing.
1: And then, all whilst sort of they were pushing through this law, right at the same time, the central government is saying that they're nonetheless opposed to two separate queues, and it's this dichotomy between rhetoric and reality, which. Think you don't have to be in Sweden to relate to that. It's particularly common in um, sort of where I'm speaking from in the UK. It's something that's very much relatable with respect to Tony Blair's New Labour governments. It's something that you can relate to all across the world. That dichotomy, and, and, it's, and uh, yeah,
0: you could actually call it uh, a, a kind of newspeak, a neoliberal newspeak, where where two cues are not two cues, where where. Uh, inequality is not inequality, and so on. So it, it's a very strange uh, wall of discourse that you have to break through before you can even start to discuss the questions. And and of course, the private welfare industry—they they want to confuse the debate as much as possible because they cannot go out. Still, they cannot go out in Sweden and say that we want to have an unequal system. We want that. We want healthcare to be. Viable or to be you, you, can buy you can buy a car. Why shouldn't you buy healthcare and and so on? So they cannot be that frank. So they have to come up with arguments also to create legitimacy. <laughs> what do you call it? Uh, sorry, <laughs> exactly uh, to to their seven hundred thousand uh, customers uh, who signed up for private health insurance because they feel. Uh, they are they feel sometimes questioned of course in the debate and so on should i really why am i supposed to have quick access to healthcare and they then they search for for arguments to 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 uh, and 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 then they are provided with arguments to to make them feel better as to so so the private uh, Welfare industry even say that they are doing a good thing for the for the universal welfare model. Uh, they are they are easing the the universal welfare model. So so. And and that's that's a very strange arguments because we are actually when you create a parallel healthcare system in Sweden, you are actually destroying the common the universal welfare system by creating two different systems. So. That that can never be good for the common system that you that you tear it apart.
1: Mm-hmm. And this reference to how organisations are trying to depoliticize the issue really reminds me of an excellent book by um, Pepper Culpepper at Oxford called Quiet Politics, which is about how uh, businesses in France, Germany, all across the world. But he uses uses examples in France, Germany, Japan, and the Netherlands about they had to try to. Depoliticize issues, push them off the agenda, and then all of a sudden they can lobby behind the scenes to achieve their own agendas, which aren't necessarily aligned with the interests of, of, of people more broadly. But I don't want to end and approach the end on a sort of a negative light, because at the same time we've talked about laws and uh, developments in the welfare system that lead to division and inequality, but and we've talked about how it's path-dependent, but it's not necessarily like this, one of the chapters in, in, in the book talks about the education sector and how homework assistance or tutoring, which is um, enormously common throughout Europe in um, in the UK, for example, about 20% of people are on private tutoring in addition to their, uh, to supplement their public education. Um, and in Sweden I believe there was a, a law to sort of, to subsidize this. Um, but tell us a bit more about about that, and then how um, how sort of the left groups managed to remove it and introduce a more equal approach to to education.
0: Yeah, we it's true that we had uh, some kind of tax break also in the education system where you could get you could you could make a tax break for for uh, homework assistance. Uh, the parents could do that for their children, and that's of course a very Unequal instrument because even though it's heavily state subsidized, it, it is qu- still quite expensive to do it. Um, but you get half the cost paid by the state, but you have to pay half the cost yourself. So all people cannot do it. And so it's it's uh, it's exclusive uh, both on a formal side because it's you have to have a tax to deduct if you don't have that tax you can't make the deduction you can't make the tax break so many people are formally excluded but then there is a much bigger group which is uh, uh, excluded in reality because they can't afford it uh, even though they have some tax to, to withdraw it it's, it's still too expensive to do it so it's it's a very uh, unequal instrument which is uh, very much a feature of the hidden welfare state where, and, and directed towards the more affluent groups of, of society so since it is in the school se- sector which is uh, maybe the most sensitive sector, it was possible to create uh, opinion against this kind of tax break because it was quite obvious to to big groups that it it had this uh, uh, unequal uh, mechanism built into it. So, therefore, the the Social Democrats and the left party and so on, they they created a lot of fuss uh, against this and they, they were able to to abolish this this kind of tax break in 2015, I think it was. Uh, So that's one of the examples that things can be done to to prevent the rise of this kind of hidden welfare state. Uh, uh,
1: It is possible, yeah. Mm. And I think that's a very um, important and positive and optimistic note to end on. Uh, So thank you very much for talking to me today, John. Thank you everyone for listening to this episode. As well, if you'd like to contribute to the discussion, build on the ideas that we've talked about today, you can head over to leonascal.com and you'll find a section on the homepage about John's book and what we can learn from it. And you'll also be able to offer your thoughts as well. In addition, I'd love to hear your feedback. Let me know what you thought about this podcast anonymously at bit.ly, that's L-Y forward slash feedback dash Leo, both with a capital F and L. Um, Both links will be in the description below love to hear from you. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you all enjoyed the podcast and are able to bring John bring John's book up soon in discussion with a friend or a colleague or with family. But for now, hope you enjoy the rest of your day.